Second, we're going to look at a, a woman that you might not think has anything to do with the Christmas story. Uh, a woman that is infamous, if you will, especially in the story we're going to look at today from Genesis chapter 30. And that is uh, the matriarch Rachel, who is the wife, the second wife of Jacob. And a very famous story that we're going to talk about today, infamous story that we're going to talk about today in uh, Rachel and Leah's competition to have children. So before we get into our text today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings of Christmas. We thank you for your word and how it forms us. And Lord, how a story that is so dysfunctional, a story about a family that is uh, as dysfunctional as any soap opera could ever imagine, Lord, that that story could be woven into the greater story of our redemption is just evidence of your hand upon the story of man and the history of this world. So, Father, I pray that we would see that in the story of Rachel and her desperation to have a child and how everything that she tried was, uh, was useless without your grace and your mercy in her life. So, Father, I pray that you would bless me, give me the words to say that would encourage and build up, and that you would take away those words that would distract or lead astray. And I pray that all would be done for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So, as I mentioned already, barrenness is this major theme in the Old Testament. I explained last week that uh, Sarah and her barrenness is, is the, really the crux of the story of Abraham and Sarah's life and how God uh, allowed them, allowed Abraham and allowed Sarah to exhaust every other means known to man to have a child and to fulfill the promise that God had made to them. And then God finally, when every physical possibility had been exhausted, He, by a supernatural work, enabled Sarah, even after she was old and uh, past the point of menopause and already professed to be barren, He enabled her to have a child. And that child ended up being the child of promise, Isaac. Well, uh, that I mentioned last week that that theme of barrenness is hearkens to the grace of God. It indicates that God is gracious to those who are incapable, unable to do anything to gain God's blessing by their own works. And so often that is a a foreshadowing or a, a type of the spiritual barrenness that we all have. We are all in a place of spiritual barrenness because we are under the curse of sin and we ultimately will face the judgment of God because of our sin. So if there's nothing we can do, we are cursed. We are under that curse and there's nothing we can do to escape the curse of God. And so the stories that we find of these women who suffer from barrenness hold a spiritual undertone to them and point to the fact that we all are in a state of barrenness without Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to look at this famous story of Scripture in the story of Rachel, the second wife of Jacob. Now you probably remember from your Sunday school studies and your Bible studies of your own, you remember the story of Jacob's love for Rachel and what looks like it's going to be at the beginning this beautiful love story of 
Jacob being outcast from his family or exiled from his family and sent to live with his uncle Laban. And when he gets there, it's like love at first sight. He sees Rachel and he immediately falls in love with her. The Bible time and again notes that Rachel is a beautiful woman. And so he's just like, I've got to have Rachel. So he's willing to make a deal with Laban to uh, work for seven years for Rachel's hand. And so he does that. He works for seven years. It gets down to the point that it's time to have the wedding. And uh, Laban, by cunning, decides to get Jacob stone cold drunk. He gets him drunk. He sends him into the the wedding chamber and uh, sends instead of sending Rachel in to marry Jacob, he sends in Leah, Rachel's older uh, sister. And Jacob uh, lies with Leah, and in the morning, in the light of day, he wakes up and he sees that it's not Rachel, it's Leah, and he goes to Laban, he complains, and he tries to, I don't know if he tries to get out of the deal, but he complains vehemently about the deal, and he ends up negotiating with Laban to work another seven years to earn Rachel's hand. Now at this point, This might seem like either an ancient soap opera or an ancient romantic comedy, but whatever the case may be, at this point you might look at the story and say, okay, well it it had some twists and turns, but now the story is working out. Now everything's going to be fine because true love has won. Uh, He's gotten his love. Love conquers all. And the story can end now. Well, you'd be mistaken to think that. And so let's read Genesis chapter thirty verses 1 through 24, to see the twist in this romantic comedy, or this soap opera, I guess you will, uh, if you will. It says, Genesis chapter 30, verse 1, God's Word says, When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children, or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go in to her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So he gave him, she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. And Jacob went in to her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with, many, uh, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Nephtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it 
a small matter that you have taken away my husband. Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he laid, uh, so he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. So as I pointed out last week, barrenness was an especially terrible curse for women in ancient times. As I mentioned, the, you know, their value was wrapped up in the children that they could produce. And so if they couldn't produce children, then they weren't, much, they weren't worth much at all. And as I pointed out with the story of Sarah, women could be driven to such desperation that they were willing to sacrifice everything, basically sacrifice the health of their family, sacrifice the, the cohesiveness of their family for the sake of a child. And we find just such desperation in Rachel in this story that we've read today. And I want you to notice there are three efforts that Rachel makes to try to free herself from the scorn and the reproach of her barrenness. First, She tries misdirection. So in verses 1 and 2, we see that she's barren and she envies the fertility of her sister. In fact, there's this terrible competition between her and her sister throughout the whole story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel. So what does she do because of this jealousy? Well, first, she blames her husband. Notice she says, give me children or I will die. She turns her anger and her uh, inability to conceive, it mixes together into a terrible concoction of anger and she turns that against her sister and her husband. And I'm sure she blamed her sister for being uh, conniving and plotting against her. I'm sure she blamed her husband for favoring Leah because Leah was able to have children when she wasn't. So she shifts her blame for her barrenness to those around her. And as I've mentioned, and I want you to hold this in your mind as we go through these three different fateful efforts that, that Rachel, makes, Rachel makes, I want you to remember that barrenness, physical barrenness, is a shadow or a type of spiritual barrenness. It's more meant to, in Scripture, to point to our own judgment and the fact that we are scorned because of our sinfulness. So it's interesting that Rachel tries this misdirection or this blame shifting and with her barrenness because in our sinfulness we can react the same way towards the judgment of God when we hear that we're sinners and we deserve the judgment of God 
one of our responses might be to say, well, you know, it's not my fault. I was born this way. Or I've, I've just had a really tough lot in life and I just can't help it. Or I've just built up these habits over the course of my life. Or it was my daddy's fault. Or it was my mama's fault. Or it was my brother's fault. And we tend to shift blame from our actual willingness and delight in our own sin. We shift blame to other people because we want the, the blame for our sin to be off of us and the shame of our sin to be off of us. And this is nothing new. Not only was it something for Rachel that she did it, and not only is it something that we do with our own sin, but it's something that our first parents, Adam and Eve, did. Remember the story of their sin in Genesis chapter 3 when God comes to them and, and is searching them out and He finally finds Adam or Adam is willing to, to come out of hiding God asks what he has done and why he has eaten of the fruit. And what does Adam say? That woman that you gave to me, she gave me the fruit and I ate of it. So not only does Adam shift the blame towards his wife, Eve, but he also shifts the blame towards God. He doesn't just say that woman gave me the fruit and I ate. He says that woman that you gave to me. She gave me the fruit. He shifts the blame to everyone else, including God. And and we see that time and again in our culture today as people say, well, God made me this way. I can't help it. Or I I have this predilection towards this sin and I can't help it. Um, we, We love to blame God. We love to blame our parents. We love to blame any and everyone else. And Eve does the same thing. She says, well, the serpent, he tempted me and I ate of it. It is the most common reaction of the sinner to blame someone else. But blame shifting will not deliver you from the judgment of your sin. It will not be acceptable on that day of judgment when Christ comes again and we stand before Him. It will not be acceptable to say that it was anyone else's fault other than our own. I want you to understand that you are responsible for your own sin. You make the decision regardless of your background, regardless of your habits. And I'm not denying it all. Don't hear me wrong on this. I'm not denying it all that there aren't certain desires and habits and and life circumstances that lead us to certain sins. But you choose time and again to go back to that sin. It is your choice your responsibility, you sin, and you will bear the judgment for it. Second, in verses 3 through 8, we see that Rachel tries manipulation. Like her grandmother-in-law, Sarah, she gets the bright idea to give her maidservant to Jacob to have a child through her. For a while, that seems to work. She has some children and she's you know, rejoicing over them. But just like it did with Sarah, it does nothing but add to the family strife that only something like that can do. Again, when we, uh, like Rachel, when we face the judgment of God, we might respond with manipulation too. We might try to hide our sins from our fellow church members. You know, we can do what we want during the week, but as long as we put a coat and tie on, we, we look just fine. We look like any other church member. And we, we can come and we can act the part and play the part. We know the language of church. We know how to do it. And so we can get away with 
those secret sins that we carry with us. We might compensate for our sins by doing good deeds, thinking, oh, I messed up, so I'll, I'll give a little extra to charity. Or I'll, I'll make sure that I'm extra nice to the, to the guy on the street as I pass by him. We might manipulate other people with our sin. Uh, we might ma- manipulate other people that we sin with or that we sin against in order to hide or lessen our guilt. You know, if we sin against someone else, we might try to minimize that sin to them and get them to admit or to quickly forgive us so that we don't feel so guilty. But the truth is, God knows. Whether we think we can cover over it, whether we think we can manipulate other people to to make us feel better about our sins, whatever the case, God still knows. As Numbers chapter 32 verse 23 says, Be sure your sins will find you out. Finally, in verses 14 through 18, Rachel tries medicine. Now, if you're a modern reader and you read this story starting in verse 14, you're thinking, what on earth is going on here? Of all the, and I say this completely identifying as a redneck, of all the redneck things to do, they're arguing over fruit and passing men around over fruit. This is just as weird as it gets. And, um, but, the, uh, but what's going on here is that mandrakes in those days were considered to be an aphrodisiac and they were considered to help with conception. And so Rachel is bartering with Leah in order to get these mandrakes because she thinks that it's a medical solution to her problem. If she can get these mandrakes, she can eat them, she can give them to Jacob, and this will increase her fertility, and by that she can have children. So it's her last best hope, this medicine is her last best hope of having a child. And in the end, what's interesting about this story is her plot doesn't just fail, it adds insult to injury because by dealing with Leah and, and bartering to ha- so that Jacob will go into Leah instead of Rachel, Leah ends up conceiving another child instead of Rachel. And so, you know, our reaction to the judgment of God can lead us to try to cover over the guilt through self-medication. We can, a lot of times, guilt is the root source of whatever uh, issue we're dealing with, whether it be depression or it be anxiety. Now, a lot of times, depression and anxiety is just a, a, a chemical issue, and in that case, you definitely should seek out medication or seek out help for that. But a lot of times... Those, the, the, the sorrow, the melancholy, the depression that we deal with, uh, the root cause of that can be guilt over our sins. And so uh, we can seek out self-medication, whether it be through alcohol or drugs or even cake, to, to deal with our sins and to cover over it and to assuage the guilt and the pain that comes with it. But the story of Rachel isn't a tragedy. It might seem like one at this point, but it's not a tragedy. It's a story of God's grace when this woman had exhausted every other possibility. 
In verses 22 through 24, we read that God had heard her prayers and He gave her a son. She had tried to misdirect and to blame shift. She had tried to manipulate the situation by giving her servant to her husband. She had tried to uh, the use of popular medicine to bring about a solution to her problem. None of it had worked. And at the point that she had exhausted all other possibilities, apparently the only thing she had left was to hit her knees. And so it says in verse 22, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She prays, and God answers her prayer and gives her a son. But this son is not just any son. The name of this son is Joseph. And if you remember the story of Joseph, you know that Joseph wasn't just a blessing to Rachel and her barrenness. He was a blessing to the whole family of Jacob. And not only the whole family of Jacob, you could argue that he was a blessing to the whole world. Because Jacob, I mean, Joseph was sold into slavery. He went to Egypt and through God's providence, he ended up working up through uh, Egypt to become the second in command over all of Egypt, basically the prime minister of Egypt. And he became prime minister of Egypt at the very time when the empire of Egypt was facing a famine. And through the wisdom of God, Joseph was, uh, was able to save up food so that the nation of Egypt and the, all the surrounding area might be able to survive the famine that came on the land. Sadly, though, Rachel didn't get to see the great deliverance that her son would bring. She died in childbirth while having her second son, Benjamin. And that death was so sudden, they were actually on their way through the promised land when she died. Uh, It was so sudden that Jacob had to bury her on the side of the road in a little town called Ephrath. Because of her son, the Jewish people revered Rachel and they saw her as a representation of God's deliverance. And so her tomb sort of became this shrine and this place of prayer, especially when the people were being taken from Judah into Babylon into captivity. It's known that the Jewish people, as they passed by her tomb, which was right on the road, right on the side of the road as they marched to Babylon, it's known that people would stop and pray at her tomb because of her reverence as a mother of a deliverer. And so this is what you can imagine Jeremiah is picturing as he prophesies in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentations and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. This little town of Ephrath, where Rachel was buried, would later be called by another name. It would be called Bethlehem. It was in the little town of Bethlehem that another deliverer was born. Not only just another deliverer, but the once 
and final deliverer, Jesus Christ, would be born. Jesus didn't just come to deliver a woman from barrenness or to deliver his people from famine. Jesus came to deliver his people from the bondage and curse of sin. He came to set the world right. So Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus has come as the great deliverer who reveals the truth of God, who sets the captives free, and who brings peace between God and man. That deliverance can only be known through faith in Jesus Christ. Today, I call on you to repent of your sins. Repent of trying to shift the blame to someone else about your sins. Repent of trying to manipulate the situation so that your sins don't seem so bad. Repent of trying to numb the guilt with substances. No amount of human effort can hide your sins or right your situation. Turn to Jesus in faith and seek His forgiveness and receive His grace this Christmas season so that you might not face the judgment of God, but you might have life in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the deliverance that we have in Jesus. Lord, we thank You for the witness of Rachel that when all else is lost, when all else is an impossibility, it's at that point that You work through grace to bring our deliverance. Father, I pray that we would walk away from our guilt and shame and turn instead to Jesus in faith and repentance. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who has not trusted in you, that you would turn them to you today. Father, I pray that you would bless us now as we respond in faith. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.